0: Right, well, welcome back. Here, we, Here are. we are. Here we are. Yeah, look at us in between. In between science. science in between. I'm
1: Ollie, and I'm Scott. And and uh, yeah, this is episode 16. So I don't. This doesn't. Sweet 16. Is that what we say? Like we could say that. Sure. Yeah, sure.
0: Sure. And we're kind of taking a, di- a different approach this week. I think actually for the next couple episodes, we're going to do something a-, a little different. Something that we w- was on our uh, radar as something we wanted to do. And then as we talked about how we're going to do this, we we decided to a- actually spread it out over several weeks. And Scott, you want to like tell our many, our- the multitude of listeners out there yeah. what what we're planning to do here
1: yeah so um so what ali and i are going to do is a sort of uh, book club uh and and we have chosen as our book um that we're going to talk about uh, a book by brian brown who's a faculty member at stanford university and he wrote a book called science in the city culturally relevant stem education and um it's a it's a a very recent book, it was published in 2019, um, but I have used it um, with my uh, teacher professional development projects uh, that I have been engaged in over the last year or so. well, I've been doing them longer than that, but I've been using Brian's book for the last year or so, and I uh, used it this year with my pre-service teachers um, in in my science methods class as uh, one of the texts that they read. So it's a it's a wonderful book, and it's um, it's written sort of right in the sweet spot of um, it really targets practitioners, um, but it draws heavily on research, and it's you know, in the, uh, in the parlance of the science in between podcast, uh, we would say it's got some esoteric bits to it. Absolutely. Um, so, so he definitely goes into some, you know, into some real theory, uh, about education, but, um, but so, it's really, uh, it's really a great book and, and, and gets at some of the key themes that we see as central to this podcast.
0: Yeah. And I, I think there's a couple of things I, I thought I would want to set up. Uh, you know, state outright before we start talking about um, the book. And we're gonna talk about the introduction in chapter one today. And and I think first off, um that I wanna disclose that I'm a Brian Brown fanboy. I think that's something that needs to be said. Um when I was I think we
1: both are in fairness. So. Okay.
0: Yeah. And I think that <laughs> when when I was a a new science ed researcher slash scholar, you know, way back in, you know, 13, 15 years ago. uh, And I got to see Brian Brown speak. I was just blown away by him. And honestly, he's one of those people who's, I mean, he's super smart and he's somebody who is researching the right stuff and from the right points of view. And, but I think more than that, like I still see him fundamentally as a, as a classroom teacher. I still see, like, you see sparks of that. When you see him speak or you read the stuff he writes, you still see him as a, uh, as a as a classroom teacher as somebody who's been in in the trenches getting his hands dirty with students and i think that sometimes you know there's other folks and i won't you know drop names but there are other folks that you know you would encounter in the science ed community who that's maybe not as apparent and, and so that's the one thing i feel like we need to talk about right at the beginning and the, i think i think the other part that i i thought was interesting was that um you and i are two old white men uh or middle-aged white men right and 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 so I thought that that would be uh, interesting that we're the folks who are talking about Brian Brown's book. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I think that what's interesting about that is that we may be the target audience for Brian's book, Um, because I think that... Um, or we are some of the target audience for Brian's book. Um, And, and I think that's uh, what makes it, you know, relevant for us to talk about is because it's important for us as, as, as I mean, still, you know, the statistics bear out, um, you know, the majority of, of science teachers are, are white men. And, and, and that's part of the problem that, you know, that's addressed in the book and why is that happening? And um, yeah, so the book is, you know, designed for us and how we can make uh, our classrooms, the science classrooms, a more open, safe, inclusive space for the students we work with. Yeah,
1: right. And I think, you know, this, this book draws on, on Brian's history of scholarship. And, you know, in full disclosure, he was um, a student of Greg Kelly, who is a faculty colleague of mine, and that Ali knows well as well. So, um, and, And so he comes from the perspective of somebody who has studied classroom practice from a sort of anthropological and discourse uh, ethnographic perspective. So he went into classrooms and really sat in them for long periods of time to study them, to understand um, how kids generate knowledge in science, and what science classrooms sh- can and should look like. So, so he's grounded in in the same way that um, you know Ali, you mentioned that he's he has this sort of teacher feel. He also has a clear classroom feel to him. So he doesn't feel like a researcher who who you know, hasn't thought deeply and been in classrooms in meaningful ways, right? Like they're certainly s- scholars of education who that's not their focus. They're not right. in classrooms. They don't think about classrooms much, um, but he clearly does and, and is one of those people. And, um, and I agree with you. It's one of the things that, that I think you and I like about him, because I think we think of ourselves like that too. <clears throat> so, um, and
0: I don't think I think one of the other parts about that is, is he he's empowering as a as a, as a writer, as an author, as a researcher, like he's feeling like he's pointing out the the things that uh, need to be, you know, embraced, need to be fixed, if we're going to say that. But he also does this in an empowering way so that as a reader, you you want to, you know join the team. You want to join the team and you want to, uh, you know, jump in and, and and work on it too. And I I think this is, I'm going to, is it okay? Are we going to read? Is it okay if I read some? Is that good? Yeah,
1: it's okay for you to read some.
0: All right. I'm going to read a, it's a, it's a section. A book it's a book club. So this is, this is great. So uh, I'll try not to read. Uh,
1: it, is it from the introduction?
0: It is from the introduction. Okay, in good. Fact. That's good. Yeah. And so I, this is how he ends the introduction. And again, this is how empowering he is. Uh, he says, we're not teaching a room of individuals who are the same from state to state and community to community. We have the privilege of teaching vibrant young minds who show up with a wealth of linguistic and cultural resources. That's awesome. That's mm-hmm. awesome. And then he finishes that, that the whole chapter, whole introduction with, with this. And so if you're a science teacher, this is like where you want to like, you know, pull over on the side of the road. Cause I think this is the, the point of science of teaching science is to promote excuse me, I'll just start again. The point of teaching science is to provide young people with a lens that they can then use to change the world we live in. Science education is about speaking to everyone's strong suit and making sure science is among the things they feel like home. And I'm just like, yes, that's what we are all about. And I think that's the, uh, it sets the stage and it empowers you as a reader and as a science teacher to just go off and do good things. And, And that's awesome.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, the other big thing that he does in the introduction um, that is, that is really powerful um, is, is this um, generational educational dilemma that he, he puts forward as, as one of the the reasons that he got interested in writing this book um, because, um, because Brian's black and he is specifically referring to the experience of African-American and black people in the United states um and the and just sort of backward mapping to see how relatively recently it's the case that that um, black folks in this country have had had really significant access to higher education right and then it's only a couple generations um, that that's really been a reality and and the impact of that you know if you think about the civil rights, movement happening in the sixties, you know, that's not that long ago. And, and that's basically when Brian was born. Right. So, um, so to, to think about that and, and, and what that means for, um, well, for lots of things, but I think the thing that he's particularly pointing out is, even though he doesn't say this directly, um, that means that the systems that we have in place to school kids were set up largely without black people in mind, right? They were set up for white people. um and and that has a significant impact on the way that we think about schools and schooling. and And he is taking on, a big piece of that but but also a specific piece of that which has to do with the the language the way that we talk in yeah. in classrooms and specifically the way that we talk in science classrooms and what counts as legitimate talk in science classrooms
0: which i think is is probably one of the reasons why it resonates with you and i is because we're we're big discourse people right we've probably mm-hmm. if you've been you know Sticking with us over these last 15, 16 episodes. We've talked a lot about talking about science and how we talk yeah. about science and how we talk about sense making and, and all that. And and so he takes a discourse linguistic perspective, right? And he talks about the, the culture of our classrooms and the, the the culture that's allowed into our classrooms and the cultures that we, you know, maybe explicitly or implicitly keep out of our classrooms. Mm-hmm. And and I think that is is uh a real critical perspective that Brian lends to this. And I I, I do want to take one, you know, I guess, to sort of expand on something you said is that while he centers a lot of this on the experiences of of Black students. Um, I don't think he's limiting it to Black students. I think he's you know no, really sure. he's expanding it to you know a really culturally diverse population of students. So I think he would as easily apply this to you know English language learners who come to our classrooms or people who are learning it, you know so a lot of folks um, who are not finding a safe space in our classroom who are not feeling like the science classroom is the welcome space for them. Him.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I agree completely. I mean, I think he he's setting it up. Um, he sets up the book from his own experience, and yeah. so I, yeah. as a as a black man growing up in the U.S., I think that's how he positions the initial um, sort of. I mean, I think he treats it really like an epiphany, being in the audience of of this Mary Montell Bacon's uh, talk, where he which is where he he's introduced to this idea of the of the generational educational dilemma uh, or gap um and uh i think i think yeah he he definitely is not um he is not a uh only advocating for for certain populations what he is um recognizing is that we have a system that was set up for a particular kind of person, right? And, and basically the kind of person that he's referring to is middle-class white folks. So these systems that we have were, were linguistically and structurally designed, um, to support those kinds of people learning. And that kind of talk is recognized and, and he's pointing out the, the impact of that. And we can talk about, you know, chapter one, how he talks about that explicitly, but, um, but in the introduction, he's just setting it up as this, um, this you know challenge that we have to to think about how to um, create schools that will uh, bring all kids you know forward right support sure. all kids learning and 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 recognizing that um that means, you know, that that's going to be super challenging and that it's going to cause discomfort for some people, particularly people who um, currently have have power and that these systems are designed for.
0: Yeah. And I I think the other part that's challenging for us as teachers and of uh, us as teachers of teachers is that uh, there are not models. There are a whole lot of models for what this looks like. Right. I mean, he's providing them. um, But in our practice, There's not a whole lot of that. And so we're sort of like creating new trails for our, our teachers and our teacher candidates and for, you know, the students that they work for or work with and, and that's, you know, challenging and and it, it, it is but i think that we we see the problems we and i think one of the you know if we move into chapter one a little bit i think uh he talks a lot he takes a really interesting perspective on stereotypes that i think relates to this and i think also kind of stopped me in my my tracks a little bit right so mm-hmm. he he throws out this he, he quotes uh nasser who when she's talking about um the stereotypes are indexical and that was a word i stopped mm-hmm. at and thought about it, and i'm like yeah they are so what what the premise is is that every stereotype is indexing to some other thing and that other thing is usually the dominant thing of whatever that stereotype is trying to reflect and so um he in the book talks uh brian Brown talks about um you know that white men can't jump that that's the stereotype that he uses and, and what does that do index and indexes back to you know folks who can jump which you know are probably like you know bat, black athletes or black basketball players specifically. And so um, but you know when you think about like the other, you know, the other that come to our classroom, and they're seeing the stereotype of what science is, right, which has star- Science is the stereotypical, you know, uh, the Big Bang Theory kids, the Big Bang Theory mm-hmm. guys that you would see on TV, you know, the Sheldons, that's the, that, that's the model, that's the stereotype of, of science in there. And any, anything that isn't that is the other, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that we don't, create the space that's welcoming to the other because we've created the stereotype and anything that's not that doesn't belong
1: yeah no i think that's right and that's really yeah it is it is a powerful example and and that's a section of the text i marked as well and and it it also made me think interestingly about how we um other ways that we do that, right? And specifically, what it brought to mind because um, I think probably I read this um, after having had my graduate class where we were talking about some of these issues is the idea of misconceptions and how those are, in their way, indexing, right? And so we other we other kids' ideas by calling them misconceptions or you know this I so so we position canonical scientific knowledge as as the right thing and then we index kids ideas against that and it creates it does create a problem that I you know again that I think Brian's addressing in this book so this idea that the way we talk about kids ideas as teachers is um is also important like we talk about talking with kids about their ideas but how we talk about and therefore think about kids ideas is also really important because it does It does say something about what we think about kids ideas implicitly right it does index against this, and I think, especially for secondary school teachers. uh, In science, um, this is a struggle right like the the old saw about high school teachers teach content and elementary school teachers teach kids, I think. The truth of that, one of the pieces of truth in that that's important is that, um, it is very difficult for, for, um, secondary school teachers to separate themselves and, and see and not feel like there's, there's a piece of identity associated. Like I still think of myself on some level as a physics person. Right. And, you know, you've, you've said the same thing. Um, and, and so that, you know, I think that's something that we have to grapple with is that, um, the way that it's not just how we talk with kids ideas, but how we talk about their ideas that, that matters.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking if we had a we had we need to have an esoteric uh, excuse me an esoteric scorecard today. Yeah, you know, it's like okay, canonical. Check.
1: Yeah, check.
0: Exical, check. We have you know? we haven't
1: dropped epistemological, but not know.
0: yet. But I feel it's coming at some point. <laughs> it is maybe maybe not
1: this episode, but one of these episodes soon. We'll work that in.
0: Yeah. So in the show notes, we should just like have like a glossary, the yeah. glossary of things. Yeah. So I, I really, I, I feel like there's so much rich, uh, so many rich things to talk about, um, in this. And, and I think that, you know, coming back to, uh, you know, how we're discourse oriented people, I think Mm -hmm. there's, there's a quote at the end of the the chapter of chapter one that I think is is, that I want to share. Um, and the, the, Again, this is going to get esoteric, uh, but I apologize for that. Uh, well, maybe I don't. I don't know. Um, schools today operate just do on. It. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to jump in. Um, So, this is on uh, page 23, if you're reading along at home. Um, mm. Schools today operate on the same dualistic principle where one type of discourse is privileged. Mm. That discourse is one deeply connected to the history and t- contexts of white middle class America. Mm. And And while there's part of part of me that goes, well, I'm white middle class America, I Mm -hmm. know that the students that we work with, aren't all white middle class America, and that we have to create discourse spaces for them too. and 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 that's the that's the challenge. I think that's the thing that we leave the book um, with is, you know, how do we do that.
1: Yeah and and I think you know he talks about in chapter 1 he talks about this idea of the black tax right which yeah. is that there is a cost now he he starts with a sort of um the maybe not the or but a an extreme example which is about James Meredith who was the the young man who integrated the University of Mississippi um and <clears throat> You know that he has this picture brian talks about having this picture of of james meredith uh, as his like background and his computer because he wants to remind himself and and there's a picture of james walking into the building all these people i'm, well, I'm sure you've seen this picture yeah. yeah like cursing him and spitting on him and like and he has to walk through this and so he's talking about like how difficult it is to be um to be james And to recognize, like, not only does he have to be just as good at all the academic stuff as the people around him, but he also has to deal with this whole other layer of stuff that all the people around him actively want him to fail and are trying to make him fail. And um, and then, you know, he transitions into um, into a describing the, the more sort of passive or or implicit way that this happens now in schools. But he has this quote on page 21, then I'll read since since we're doing the book clubby thing. At the end of this um, first, first paragraph under first impressions in the contemporary black text, he has the last sentence is, the price that many young people pay to be heard is that they must arrive in class sounding like the type of person their teacher wants them to be. So this idea that like, kids are not even heard in classrooms unless they speak the right way, right? The normative way. And he has a lot of different examples of how this plays out, but um, but this, you know, this, and how that that constitutes what he considers the, the current version of this black tax that they're. And again, you know, as Ali pointed out, I don't think he's, he's using blackness as an example. I don't think he's using yeah. it as the only example. I mean, he, he often refers to, as you said, second language learners, Latinx uh, kids. Um, and so, you know, it's, this is not unique to, to black folks. It's it, but it may be more significant with black folks. Um, so I think, you know, the this um, the, this this first chapter really introduces the this idea of of the black tax and how it plays out now through through linguistics through the way that we talk in schools.
0: I guess as I was trying to think about this, because he doesn't, um, I think the one thing that I would have liked to have seen in in this first chapter or the introduction in the first chapter is the is more examples for us as the reader of okay a student who's saying this um how we can be more welcoming to that and maybe and, and maybe that's intentional um uh, yeah we
1: get there for sure sure so and
0: and and so he's, he's sort of setting the stage for that i guess in the beginning um i'm sort of like so to, to be I'm, I'm kind of reading along with us. So I'm reading mm-hmm. introduction to chapter one. You've read yeah, the whole book, um, but yeah. I'll, I'll get there over the next course. Uh, so you can, I guess you're going to be the discussion leader and I'm just here, you know, maybe your you're one person you're, book You're club. my interlocutor. <laughs> oh, look at oh, that. See, for being um, esoteric. There it is. You're my, so I think some examples of that is going to help to um, me as a teacher, me as a t- uh, teacher educator, Have a better sense of what that looks like in practice. I think that's the piece that um, would be the home run for me is okay, I see this. And when the student, when a student is saying this, that what we can do is rather than just saying, well, that's not the right words, we're gonna keep you out of the community. And we could do that and, and maybe not in so overt ways, but we're like, um, why don't you think more about that and I'll come back to you. Right. And, and so what we've done is just basically silence them. Um, and so I think that uh, examples of that and how we can be more inclusive and more welcoming is I think the, the critical next step.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he's really, um, setting the problem. Right. And, and what he's doing is recognizing that, um, I mean, I think at some level, what he's, what he's, what he's trying to do here, the case he's trying to make is that, um, is one that we're hearing a lot in our culture right now, which is that racism is a subtle thing, right? Like we yeah. think of racism as being, you know, KKK swastikas, you know, people um, marching in the streets and, in, and in, um, white power. Um, and certainly that's as W. Kamal Bell would say, that's sort of the tip of the racist iceberg. Like that's the visible part of yeah. it. But, but what he, what Brian's pointing to is, one of the many ways that that racism is systemic and built into our our institutions in ways that that we as white folks, um, especially as as we are talking about middle class white folks. Right. Like we we don't we're the fish in water for this stuff. Like we're, we, yeah. we do not recognize that these systems are set up for us by us um, and and over time have 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 systematically advantaged us and and he's showing i think in this opening Um, two chapters, the subtle ways that that can happen. You know, he talks about the kid with um, like dreadlocks and gold teeth in the chemistry class, right? As the example of like, well, as soon as that kid walks in the door, he's got a barrier to get over because everybody in that class, including the teacher has no expectation that he's going to participate in chemistry in a productive way. Right. And so anything that comes out of his mouth, um, even if it's, you know, very uh, even
0: if it's brilliant even if right. it's
1: brilliant, and and phrased normatively right right phrased using sort of very clear white english sort of vernacular um even if all that is true he's still got a barrier to go over but if he doesn't like if and this is brian's point like if he's also talking in in a vernacular that is not in line with that that sort of traditional canonical way of talking and especially in science classes you know, his ideas are, are just not going to be taken up. And and once that happens, like often enough, and it doesn't have to happen all that often, like those kids are going to be disenfranchised. They're going to be disconnected. and And that leads to all sorts of problems that we see, right?
0: yeah and I think that one of the things that he built so this is probably one of my favorite parts of this this book uh, at least the beginning part of this book is that when one fan when I'm a fanboy of one person and he references somebody else that I'm a fanboy of that's just you know it was it's too like, much for you to take I know it was awesome so he, he talks about Malcolm Gladwell who mm. I am just you know we both are right I mean yep. you're a Malcolm Gladwell fan as well yeah he, he talks about this the the blank so that he, yep. he brings in the the, the book Blink where he talks about thin slicing. And so how we make these quick decisions about people just by taking a thin slice. When we, we see somebody, we meet somebody automatically, we've made an impression whether we've done that consciously or not. And so, and this is building on that, you know, the student who walks into the chemistry classroom and they have dreadlocks and, and, the, and they're not, they're, they're not the quote unquote, stereotypical, you know, chemistry kid that we're going to have that thin slice. And we're going to already uh, predispose that kid to whatever our conceptions are and, and whether we do that intentionally or not, um, I think the Malcolm Gladwell book Blink does a really good job of saying that that's something that's very pervasive in our work with, with everybody, with with, with our work and in interactions with everybody. And which is w- so critical for our work as, as, as teachers and specifically as science teachers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no yeah i think
1: i think that's right and and it is um you know I, I maybe that's worth even emphasizing is i think part of his point here is um a teacher does not have to be ill-intentioned for this for this system to function right that's part of the pernicious nature of these these yeah. institutional problems right is that you can have the best intention teacher in the world and even ones that have had anti-bias training and whatever, you know, who still, um, are going to behave in ways that are going to marginalize kids, um, based on the way they talk in, in class. And, yeah. and, you know, it, 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 I think it's really, yeah, it's really a challenge to think about it that way to say, um, because we have, you know, again, maybe this happens in other disciplines, I'm sure it does, but it's certainly in science. One of the things that, scientists are sort of um obsessive about is the use of technical language right like when we say force we mean a very particular thing right and yeah. and so that that sort of clinging to that stuff um c- can bleed over really quickly into uh into marginalizing kids ideas who can't explain things in those terms right so i think this is really um you know for me it it bleeds over into this you know sort of controversy that we've we've had um with the with the teachers i work with at park forest middle school because they do this you know energy unit and one of the core pieces of that energy unit is that kids get to make up their own terms in the beginning so they have like grabam and bam and you know zap and pow and whatever. Like they, they, they have their own vernacular that they create around these, around these things. And, and one of the big controversies that happens as a result is other teachers in particular say, well, when do they learn the real words for those things? Right? When do they learn that that's potential energy and that's elastic potential energy and that's gravitational potential energy and that's kinetic energy and that's sound waves and that you know and that not that they learn that not that they understand the idea, but when did they learn the label for that? Yeah. thing? And so when I hear that conversation now, um, increasingly I hear I hear Brian's voice in my head and other people's saying, what, what's really going on there when, when we're demanding that what's really going on when we're demanding that the only way to describe these things is this very specific canonical language and and what what happens as a result of of doing that
0: and I think what what builds on that is he says explicitly language is not mm-hmm. a neutral medium right and right. and as soon as we re- require this, you know, the normalized, you know, term, right. What we're saying to them is, okay, to be, to, to access this community, you've got to use our words. Mm -hmm. Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's uh, you know, this, this section where he talks about norming, discourse, which is what we're talking about here is the same place where he where um, he talks about Naland Nasir's piece about indexing so it is it all it is all connected right this idea that uh, that um, that one of the ways that we we police race and we police privilege is through language right and um, and I do think that's a really interesting question, you know, that the thing I was thinking about as I was, so I was driving a lot this morning because I had to pick up my daughter and she was uh, far enough away that I was in the car for a while. And I was thinking about this idea of like, what does it mean if kids understand the notion of potential energy, but can't put the label on it? Like, is that a failure? Is that like, what What does it mean that, that they can't call it that? Um, and I think it really, you know, for me is, is a, is becoming an increasingly important question that we need to ask ourselves when we think about what it means for kids to learn science.
0: So I, I let me, let me kind of frame it a little differently that might somebody, somebody out there might be, you know, uh, disagreeing with us. So let me frame it a little differently that I think I can't this, believe
1: anybody would disagree with us.
0: I, I know. Cause, cause we're brilliant. Um, No. I, but I, let me frame it a th- th- different way. Um, so which would be more acceptable? Somebody who knew the term but had no idea what it meant. So they were just like, oh, that's inertia or that's gravitational potential energy. When you, uh, when you started to dig into their con- conceptualization of the, the, those ideas, you know, that we just realized they have no idea what they're, what they're talking about. They have no real understanding of it. Or somebody else who may not know the term but has a really deep understanding of those concepts. I think every science teacher out there would want the person with a deep understanding over the person who doesn't like, just because they know, like, wouldn't you? I mean, I think you're wrong.
1: I think there, I
0: think there are,
1: well, let me put it this way. Um, There may be a difference between what they would say and the way that they organize their classroom. Right. Okay so i think as it is i think it is clearly evidenced that there are science teachers whose classrooms are organized to do the first example of your description to provide kids with a nominal understanding uh of these terms which is to say they can say potential ed- energy is the ability to do work and gravitational potential energy can be calculated based on the height and mass and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, but they don't actually understand how those things work in the world in a meaningful way. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, you set up a a big um, span, right? Sure. Like you, you, a, a, a sort of straw man, so to speak. Like, I, I think you're right in that if if um, if you ask a science teacher, but if you said to a science teacher, well, if they knew the definition of potential energy, how's that? Where does that fall um, in your yeah. in your pattern? And my guess is a lot of people would be okay with that. And and I guess to me it goes back to this question that we've been talking about for our, for the long time that we've been doing this podcast, (laughs) uh, which is like, what is the purpose of science instruction? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? And, um, if what we're trying to accomplish is students memorizing a bunch of definitions, for me, that's not science class. Like, and that's not even English class. That's just, that's just a waste of everyone's time because those things are going to go away. So, um, so I think, I think that's for me, that's where I think about the this obsession with right talk uh and and what its consequences are for for our kids and particularly for kids who are um in some way already marginalized by the system
0: well i in in my defense i wasn't trying to create a straw man argument i was more taking my, like sort of like an, a physics approach to it right like what we do as physics people is we try to push the limits of of things and like uh-huh. so you know, if x equals infinity, or you know, so if was, you have a
1: cow and its mass is equally distributed yeah. and it's a
0: sphere, and yeah, yeah uh-huh. exactly. So I was, yeah. I was, you know, using that sort of technique. Idealized
1: here. cases.
0: Idealized cases. There you go. Dropping some, <laughs> some terminology. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah.
1: Are, are you gonna do some, uh, some uh, uh, di- diagrams for us now? We'll do some force, 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 body, di- force yeah, body free diagram. free free body diagrams. Yeah. Yeah. Get some of those out and. Yep, that's what up. we'll do
0: mm. yep. i'm doing it right now
1: yeah me too
0: just for fun um all right so i i think that this, that's probably a good place for us to uh wrap up our our conversation of the introduction in chapter one if you're if you are looking for this book it's out there you can get it on amazon science in the city it's in the show
1: related. notes baby
0: we'll put a yeah we'll put a link in the show notes and uh culturally relevant stem education brian brown um, super smart dude, and uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that, maybe we could. You, you know him, right? You're like, you're friends yeah. with him. you yeah. you could, you could reach out. Maybe he could be a guest on the show. Well, if
1: we do the whole book. Yeah, and 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 then at the end we'll see if we can get him as a special guest on the show because that how many chapters are there? I'm just going to check. Several, yeah, several. (laughs) That's being being a science person. Um, So we got seven chapters plus a conclusion, so eight chapters, and we have now. Uh, read just one, so that means we have somewhere about seven or so more episodes sure. of this if we do it that way. So, so that gives us a couple of months to get out there and see if. uh And by then, you know, the production values of the show are going to just go through the roof, and he, right. you know, we'll be ready to bring in new people and, um yeah. So it's going to be amazing.
0: Amazing. Yeah. amazing, amazing. Are we ready to move into Joyce? Because I think I have an interesting one. I have an interesting one that kind of like relates to this. You, right. you go, Ollie. All right. I, Cause I
1: have, I have one that's sort of related to it too. So we'll see, maybe we'll be calling once again, our brains will be in sync with each other and we'll, we'll be naming the same thing.
0: So uh, we started watching the the Queen's Gambit on uh-huh. Netflix and so how it relates. Um, so if you're you're unfamiliar, it's about, it's a fictionalized uh, mini series that uh, dropped on Netflix uh, a while back. And uh, it talks about a, uh, a, a, female chess player in like the fifties and sixties, who's trying to gain entry into like the competitive chess community. And so like when she starts out, she learns, she grows up in uh, an orphanage and she learns how to play chess from a, uh, a janitor. And So she doesn't really have an understanding of how the competitive chess community works or how it talks or how it exists. And so she comes in as the fish out of water. And it's a it's a space that's dominated by white men. And and she's an outsider and uh, and how she navigates that is really interesting. So I've described to some other people as I've recommended the show, it's kind of like if we took a cross between Mad Men and Miss Miss Maisel, if you're uh, familiar with those shows, like the fashion and charm of that time period. And you kind of mix in like the like ominous you know, sort of like depression of like something like Cider House Rules. And then you also kind of throw in like the genius and like madness of A Brilliant Mind. You throw those all together, put them in a pot, mix it up, and there you have uh, The Queen's Gambit. So this is that's, quite a
1: stone soup you've made of this show. I,
0: I know, and it is, it is awesome. So check it out, uh, The Queen's Gambit. And I think it's going to cause you know a uh a little you know resurgence of chess playing i think that's happening already but this might actually kick it up to the next gear so queen's gambit check it out all right yeah that's
1: excellent well um so what i will say is my um as you mentioned we're both sort of malcolm gladwell fans and maybe Maybe we've recommended this already. I guess I should go back and look if it if it brings us joy in the past. We, we need a master <laughs> list somewhere that keeps it can, track.
0: It continues to bring us joy. <laughs> yeah,
1: because if it, well, you know, in the pandemic, the problem is there's only so many things, and pretty soon you're out of things, and so right. you're like, oh, what am I going to talk about? Um, so. Uh, but I'm going to mention revisionist history, which is Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. So I don't know if we've talked about it or not. Um, I don't recall us talking about it. But, um, but anyway, it's if it is, I'll go back and fix it, and then I'll make two choices next week for, for what brings me joy. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. Um, so so it, I mean it, it's so I, while I love Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I think books are not his thing. Uh, I, I've i read his books, but his books like about halfway through, I'm like, OK, I got you, Malcolm. Like, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. We need to just pull the ripcord on this and we're out. You know, his his stuff in The New Yorker. Um, I love, you know, his. it's much, it's shorter form. It's really, you know, he, it seems like that's his sweet spot, but I think he may have actually found his correct medium in um, revisionist history. I think podcasts are exactly right for him because he's a really great storyteller and he knows how to sort of weave elements of, of um, sort of, you know, the facts with the dramatic story with the, you know, live interviews with people and the whole thing. And, um, and he's yeah he's fantastic. So um, so I was listening while I was in the car today doing this longer drive. I was listening to the new season, uh, a couple of episodes, and you know it's just great. And that the one that I was one of them, and I was listening to was about um, randomizing elections and um, grant awards, and and it made me think you know about schools and schooling and how yeah. we how it, it fits very much with Brian's. Um, not only does he talk about Malcolm Gladwell in this with the Blink, but also this idea of like how we systematically distribute um, privilege and and how that builds on itself and power. um, Yeah. So, so this idea of like, what you know, what would it be like if college admissions were randomized? Like we had a, we had a faculty member here at uh, who came to visit uh, virtually Penn State to give a talk about randomized admissions. So, um, so instead of like hand going through and looking at people's SAT scores and grades, what if what if we randomized admissions into colleges? Now it's it's not fully random. It's not like they're going to go out and pick pick people out of the whole population and send them an email and say, "Hey, you're hey, into welcome. Harvard."
0: Yeah, welcome to Penn State.
1: Yeah, but I think this idea of of how do we try and think seriously about redistributing power and how do we um, you know i mean he was talking about like in elections if if we did this randomization like we wouldn't have to worry about are there 50% of women in in the you know the house or the senate because over time randomly it would just work out that 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 yeah. the that our institutions would be representative of our population so i think it's anyway uh, he's a he's a really interesting thinker um, and and I I do like his sort of shorter form stuff better so I highly I, recommend revisionist history
0: absolutely I agree with that I think his his books it's like uh, you get the same example you know a hundred variations of an yeah. example right yeah so
1: um, yeah. And, and as you say, we're so smart, we we just need the one example. Yeah, just we just need a, the, Just give yeah, us the one. We can extrapolate
0: no, no. from there. <laughs> yeah.
1: We, we'll, we'll just make the cow into a sphere with the mass equally distributed, sure. and
0: there you go. Yeah, and draw a free body diagram.
1: Yeah, free body diagram of the cow and the forces.
0: Right. So right now, I'm sure everybody wants to have time to go off and draw their own free body oh, diagrams.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm doing all weekend, so I just right. assume that's what everybody else is doing. Darn straight. Just, yeah. Invite people over and draw free body diagrams of them.
0: Here's you. Here's the chair.
1: Here's the force of you on the chair. Here's the force of the chair on you. It's super fun,
0: man. It is. And super useful. I mean, in everyday life, so relevant. So relevant. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I think that's probably a good place to to, to end this episode today. And <laughs>
1: Please, God, make it stop. <laughs>
0: oh, this yeah. is so much fun. This is so yeah. much fun. All right, well, this is Ollie. This is Scott. And, and we have been... Science in between. See you next between. time. We'll yeah, see you, we'll next, see you time. next time. In between.